All right. Good morning, Mercy Hill Church. This is the Sunday uh, where we really determine who's all in. Um, the Sunday after Christmas is traditionally like where the true warriors of God come out. So I commend you uh, for being here with us uh, this morning. It's, it's a pleasure to share with you. My name is Nathan, and I lead uh, the student ministries here at Mercy Hill Church. All right, everyone, let's take a trip back in time, and, and everybody's experience will be different depending on the family that they grew up in. But it's early in the morning, you just wake up, you're in third grade, and you know what? You don't feel very good. Your tummy kind of hurts, right? You might have a fever, and you're just looking for a little bit of comfort, just that little bit of love from mom and just a little bit of like, it's okay, honey, I know you don't feel good. Just stay home from school today. All right, I'll make you some soup. I'll get you a Sprite for your belly, some crackers. No, no, not, not in my house. That's not how it went. Oh, your stomach hurts? Guess what? You're going to school. Oh, you have a little fever? Guess what? You're going to school. Guess who goes to work when they don't feel good? Oh, Mom, I just, I want a little bit of something here to make me feel better. I want a little bit of comfort coming from you right now. It's, it's rough right now. Things aren't good for me. No, sorry. Mom, uh, I literally cut my arm off, right? There, there's no hand left here. And, well, I'm sure we can, let's light up uh, the oven and stick it in. Maybe you can solder it off and, and make it uh, to first period, right? In my house, there was no, like, oh, I'm sorry you don't feel good. Let's, let's stay home. I'll, I'll cuddle you. That did not take place um, when I wasn't feeling well as a child. And to be honest with you, this morning I, I, uh, I had the opportunity to preach, and it's a little bit different than usual because most times uh, when I preach on a Sunday morning, we're in the midst of a sermon series. And it's really simple because we, we have passages of scriptures, and it's my favorite way to preach. Just go into it figure out what the passage says, and explain it the best I can to you here in the congregation. But we're not in the midst of a sermon series, and so I had the opportunity, but it's really something that I, to be honest with you, I sometimes dread. I had the opportunity to figure out what should I preach on today to the people of God? What does God want me to communicate to you this morning? And naturally, 2020 being what it is, I thought, I'm going to preach something comfortable, something that will bring comfort and ease your distress and ease your pain. I'm going to give you something that, that will empower you to push through 2021 as it rolls in. It seems like many of the problems from this last year are still going to try and follow us. And so I picked out the passage. I got the passage that I wanted to bring comfort. And then unfortunately, I started studying the passage and it didn't say what I wanted it to say. That comfort didn't seem like it was coming. The, the, the comfort, the, the power, the, the push, the, the life to your spirit that I was hoping would come just didn't read into the passage. Unfortunately, um, 
here at Mercy Hill, we try to figure out what the passage actually says, not what we want it to say. We bend to the will of the Bible. We don't bend the Bible to our will. And so let's, let's jump into it this morning. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for how your word instructs us. Thank you for how your word encourages us, even when it doesn't seem like the most comfortable thing. God, I pray for the scripture today that it would be of comfort, that it would provide clear direction and power to our lives. Open our eyes to see what you would have us to do and how to respond to your word today. So the passage is Romans 8, 9 through 11. It says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. See, I came to this passage hoping that what is said in verse 11 is meant for the here and now. That our mortal bodies, that this body that we walk around in that gets tired, that gets anxious, that gets depressed, that worries about what lies ahead, about the days to come. I was hoping to find in this passage and what it says that the Spirit of God, the same one that raised Jesus from the dead, that Spirit is in us. So we are here to conquer and we are here to overcome anything in our way. But as I studied this passage, specifically here, it's clear that it's talking about the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is the same spirit that is going to raise you from the dead. Any present hope, any present comfort that I was looking for in this passage seems to be pushed off to some unknown date, but a date that comes after I'm dead for sure. So that's something to look forward to. But it gets even more off the path that I had. Not only does it it say that the Spirit is going to do this great work at the end of all things, that the Spirit, that power that rose Jesus from the dead is going to be the same power that raises us from the dead. But it's conditional. Verse 9, it says, verse 9 and 10, it says, if Christ is in you, Verse 9, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. So not only does this passage not, not give this like indication of like power coming to you to, to make it through, that, that the Spirit of God is in you, enabling you to overcome, it also is conditional. Like the if, in fact, in verse 9 causes some, some tossing and turning at night. To ask and to question of ourselves, is, in fact, the Spirit of God within me? I think all of us have been around, I, I would hope, I know I, know I have, been, been around church long enough, been around Christians long enough to know that not everybody who comes along and says that they believe turns out to have that longevity of belief. Not everybody who jumps up and says, 
I believe I'm going to serve God, and they have this enthusiasm with it, sticks with it, right? I think we've seen enough to know that simply saying a prayer or within your mind agreeing with a set of facts about God and who Jesus is is an actual indicator that the Spirit of God is within you, is an indication that you are indeed a child of God and now saved. Just an intellectual agreement and assent to an idea or a fact doesn't mean a transference of grace, doesn't mean a passing from death to life, doesn't ensure that you will be raised on that last day. Verse 9 says it clearly, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And then it says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. There must be a working and therefore an evidence, a display that the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit of God is actually within you. If this evidence and if this display isn't at work in our lives, if the Spirit isn't at work in our lives here and now, Scripture's pretty clear. The Spirit's not going to be at work in your life later to raise you up from the dead. You will still be cold and in that ground and looking at an eternity away from the presence of God. So the questions that verse 9 brings, the introspection, the tossing and turning at night of, God, am I yours? How do I know? I think my heart is sincere, but I know my heart can be fooled. I think that I believe, I think that I am yours, but how do I know that to be true? I said this scripture didn't really uh, bring about the encouragement that I hoped for. It doesn't mean that it doesn't bring about encouragement. The encouragement that this scripture brings is an assurance, is a guarantee. It's something that can be known about your faith so that you can place and hold on to the future that is to come. So where do we go to for assurance? One of my favorite passages for those struggling and in doubt with their faith, of whether their belief is sincere and whether they've been transformed, comes from 1 John 3, verses 14 through 20. Bear with me. It says this. It says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth." By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. 
Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Here in this passage, we are given four indicators of the spirit of life that's talked about in Romans is actually at work in us and that we have a hope in that final day, in the resurrection that is to come. And I, I, love, I love verse 14 because it says, it says that we know, we know that we have passed out of death into life. When we know this for a fact, the sleepless nights end, the tossing and turning ends, the questioning of our sincerity ends. It says we can know, we know that we passed out of out of death into life. We know that the Spirit of God is within us, giving us life now, and will raise us up again on the last day. But how, how do we know? Like, what do we look to here for definitive evidence of the Spirit's working in our life? What I love about this passage is it really makes no mention of a secret prayer life. It makes no mention of, of overtly spiritual acts. What it talks is about is things that you can like discernibly like see, things that can be demonstrated and acted on. Like I said, I, I've grown up in the church and, and I've I've known enough Christians and witnessed enough Christians who will go in a bedroom and speak aloud in tongues very spiritual, and it's fine if you do that, but who would exit the bedroom and come out with a horrible attitude full of curses. Didn't add up to me. What, what good was it that you were doing in there, babbling on and on? I don't know that it was the Spirit. I see no evidence of the Spirit working just because you're speaking another language. Show me something real. Prove it with your life. So what's the first thing? What is the first thing that we see? Well, we see and we know that the Spirit is moved because we love. Because we love. And specifically, we know this because we love our brothers. A lot of people try to put on Christians in the church that, like, every problem in the world is our problem to solve, right? Oh, people, people, would, people would believe more if the church was, like, more out there in the world solving their problems. If you took care of the poor better, if you railed against injustice just a little bit more, if your voice was louder. But here, specifically, brothers are mentioned and the Greek word for brothers is used over and over again in this passage is Adelphus. It means a brother, a member of the same religious community, especially a fellow Christian. How do you know that the Spirit's at work within you? You have love for the fellow Christians around you. You care deeply about their life and their spiritual health, and you care about what is going on. There's love here. If you feel nothing for the people of God, if you can go weeks and weeks and weeks without seeing them and not feeling an aching or missing something within your heart, 
You're missing an indicator of the Spirit's work within your life. The Spirit's work within your life will always draw you near to fellow believers. It'll always bring you close to the people of God. And yes, specifically to the people of God at church. But, you know, to, to love something kind of gives a, a feeling or a sense or, or like an emotion. And I'm like, man, I, I think I need, I need a little bit more than that. Like, I love Ohio State football. I love it. I think there's times I love it more than any of you. I'm sorry to be honest. Sorry. Sorry. Like, man, is my love enough? How do, how do I know that, that I truly love the people of God? Well, one thing that indicates that you love the people of God, it, it seems to say in verse 15, is that we don't hate. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone hates his brother as a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. How do I love? How do I know that the Spirit's at work within me? I do not hate the people of God. I do not quarrel with. I do not hold grudges. I do not dwell in unforgiveness. I don't allow bitterness to set in from some stupid interactions. A word said here or there, a political belief, an opinion on masks or not the mask. How do we love? How do we know the Spirit's working within us? It's when offense comes at church, and trust me, it will if you're new to church. You will be hurt. You will hurt. You won't get it right, and others won't as well. But as the Spirit works within us, we are free to forgive. We are free to let go of hate We are free to put aside any differences and submit to the working of the Spirit within our life to love. I love getting into these definitive definitions. Like, now I can see it. I can't be tricked or fooled. I know when there's hate in my heart. I know the feeling that comes over my body when there's some rage there and unforgiveness. You ever, you ever walk in a situation and you see someone that, that's harmed you and your whole body just changes, like the feeling within you, your blood pressure starts to go up, maybe you get a little white. For me, like, I was a kid that, that would get into fights in school. I think my teeth are crooked from, like, gritting my teeth from, like, oh, I can't, I'm going to tear into that person. I, I think my teeth are still messed up from that. Like, there's things you know. You know when the hate is there. You know when the animosity is within you. I would challenge you today, if there's offense in this church, if you're holding something against someone else, make it right. Allow the Spirit to work and speak to you to bring about forgiveness and reconciliation. Because in the people of God, we are called to love. It's an indicator, and there cannot be hate present within us. What is... Another indicator that the Spirit is at work within us now and will raise us to life in the resurrection. 
well, 1 John 3.16 again says, By this we know love, and it's speaking about Jesus, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. To live sacrificially, to consider the needs of others is more important than our own. How do we know that the Spirit's at work within us? Our love has, has some action to it. Our love is sacrificial. Our care for, for the people of God within the, the church is willing to be inconvenienced, is willing to, to actually spend time in prayer with someone else, is willing to, to provide some relief for the situation or circumstances that they're going through, is willing to lay down your life for your brothers and sisters represented in the body of Christ. One thing to note in uh, verse 16 is it's not talking about material possessions, right? It's giving us the example of Christ. I mean, Jesus didn't come and uh, one of his miracles be to give everyone universal basic income, right? It wasn't like to cut everybody a check, right? Jesus' ministry had nothing to do with making people wealthy. Jesus' ministry had nothing to do with anything that he could give. We see the same thing with the apostles in Acts. They see a man begging, asking for money, and they say, silver or gold, we don't have for you. I don't have it. And I, I would love to be a wealthy man to hopefully give away my wealth and help people out. But for those of us that aren't blessed in that way, guess what? You're called to the high example of Christ. To love and to love sacrificially. To give of yourself. Whatever it is that you've been through, whatever your story is, it could be that the Spirit of God is working within you to bring about your opportunity to minister to someone else. To bring about your opportunity to serve the people of God. To bring about your opportunity to care for them in a unique way. What is it that God is calling you to do? How is God calling you to live sacrificially to benefit and show love to the people of God? John Piper says this. He says, why don't people ask us about our hope? The answer is probably that we look as if we hope in the same things they do. Our lives don't look like they are on a Calvary road, stripped down for sacrificial love, serving others with this sweet assurance that we don't need to be rewarded in this life. What's our responsibility as Christians? What's our evidence that the Spirit's working within our lives? It's how we care for one another. The world doesn't need us to throw more, monies at a, more money at a problem. Right? I, I've worked in homeless shelters. I've worked in addiction and treatment rehabs. I've seen money thrown at a problem. 
You want to know the one thing that you invest in a person that's never wasted? I've seen plenty of money be wasted on people. Time. Time is never wasted on a person. And this church, um, time and time again, has over and over taken people in who are down on their luck. And sure, we may provide some money for some work boots. We may provide a bus pass for someone to get to work. But the most valuable thing that we've provided that I've seen at work is relationship with people who deeply need help. And sure, someone who's homeless or dealing with addiction is a nice, big, shiny target. But guess what? This doesn't specify whether we have to work with someone who's homeless or addicted to something. There's people of God within this church who need your sacrificial love and example. There's people of God within this church that need the Spirit to be alive within you to do what He's calling you to do. And it's different for everyone. But then we do actually move on to uh, verse 17, which says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Here we are told that if we do have wealth, money, we can care less for someone around us than we may in fact, have some eternal insecurity. We may have some insecurity that the Spirit has worked within us. If you can see a need, a physical need within the body of Christ, and shrug your shoulders as if it's someone else's problem, and you have enough, then it's an indicator that the Spirit is not working within you. If you have an attitude of protection, if you have an attitude of just building up and growing and growing your wealth and not caring for those in need around you, then it's time to, to follow the example of Christ, to lay down your life and to help. I'm not talking about being crazy and just giving everything away. Uh, a couple of years ago, I got to preach on the passage of the rich young ruler, and, and studying through that passage, you come to the conclusion, Jesus isn't really expecting, it's not prescriptive, he's not expecting all of us to gather up everything we have, sell it, and give it to the poor. A specific instance where Jesus is trying to show the man the thing that he idolizes and loves more than him, he's trying to show the man his, his pride, it's not prescriptive. If it was, I think we'd all be in trouble I think we'd be walking in here instead of driving, right? I think we'd be a lot skinnier. I know I would, right? We're, we're not, it's, it's not this thing where if you have wealth, you just give it all away recklessly. Church, church doesn't need uh, bro, more broke people. We'll take them. Right? I, I have guys who are like good businessmen and the, they're saying, man, I'm called, I'm called to ministry. I know it. And it's like, and I think you're called, I think you are called to be wealthy and to benefit the people of God with your money. That's what scripture says. If you have it, if you have an abundance, share it with those who need it. 
share it with those who need it. Can I tell you, I, I grew up uh, reasonably at a time for, for a period in poverty, right? My father left, my mom was working her way through college, um, and our roof started leaking. And one thing that impacted me so much was that the church we attended, the men in the church came together, pulled together some funds, and pulled together their time and came and put a roof on our house. I don't remember a single sermon I ever heard in that church. You want to know what impacted me as a child? Was seeing the people of God give of their resources and give of their time to people in need. And once again, this is all about proximity. My mother served in the church. She sang on the worship team, kids ministry, whatever it was. She was a part of that body, and so that body rightfully helped her in a time of need. I can't drive down the road and pick out houses for Mercy Hill to bless all the time. I don't know those people. Those people aren't a part of the people of God here at Mercy Hill. But I do know if I asked, hey, if you have a need, and honestly, can, can you come forward and write down what you have, and, and maybe the people of God at Mercy Hill can help, which I know we do oftentimes. If you have wealth, if God has blessed you, he, he's calling you to action. James 2.15 verse 17 says this, it says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also by faith itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And you might say, well, like, all you're doing is, is putting more expectations, putting weight on me. Expectations for behavior. I thought this was a gospel-centered church. You should talk about what, what Jesus has done, not what I'm supposed to do. On the basis of what Jesus has done, the Spirit of God is within you upon belief. That's what we know. It's a guarantee that when you believe by faith in what Christ has done, when you go back and your sins are, for, are forbidden, are, are forgiven, are washed away, now the Spirit of God is within you, and now it's time to do. There's a reason why when you first believe, you didn't drop dead and just go to heaven right away. You believe the Spirit of God is within you, and now he's at work within you. And the same Spirit that is at work within you to love, to get rid of unforgiveness and, and hate, to live sacrificially, to pour yourself out for one another, to give of, of your possessions to those in need. The Spirit is at work within you now to do those things you know it will be at work within you to raise you from the dead. So what is, what is the blessing of this passage? What is the encouragement of this passage? It's assurance. It's a guarantee to know and to look at your life and to ask the Spirit to work within you to love. And to love in clear and defined ways. 
Now, you might say, great, but, man, I, I, I kind of want the benefit right now. I, I kind of want that power of God at display right now in my life. Let me tell you, when you start to love, when forgiveness is shown to you or you show it to someone else, man, there's no greater experience of the power of God that, than when you do those things. When you start to serve, when you see God's work within you, blessing other people, that's all the encouragement that you need in this life. Follow the example of Christ. Listen to the Spirit. Be pushed to work and move. Even if the here and now is a struggle, even if the trial is painful, allow the Spirit to work. Because we do know the, the end outcome of the story. We do know that, that all the sacrifice, all the giving, all the laying down of our pride in ourselves does have a reward, does have an amazing end. We know the end is, is that God will raise our dead, decaying bodies. He will regenerate it. He will rebuild it and make it new and our new bodies will be with him forever. It's amazing to know the end of the story. The end outcome of our faith should be a blessing and encouragement to us. You know, I, um, I have a friend named Kyle, one of my best friends. He's a farmer in southern Ohio. We grew up together playing basketball together. Um, we always argue about who's, who, who was the better basketball player. Um, his dad was the coach of the team um, that we played on junior high together. Somehow, his dad lost all the record books of, like, who, who like, scored the most points, had the most rebounds. Somehow got lost, amazingly. Very convenient. I'm pretty sure Kyle threw it in a fire. But, uh, you know, Kyle and his wife had, had trouble um, conceiving, uh, ha having a baby. There, there was years where, where they were actively pursuing uh, becoming pregnant, having a child, and it was just trial after trial after trial, um, money invested here, uh, experiments in this and that, trying different things, and, and ultimately, it just wasn't working for them, and they decided to, to go through the process of, of adoption. And uh, finally, after about a year, and, and trying to find a match, and, and everything that goes into it, and, and money spent, and, and all the things that go into adoption. Finally, Kyle uh, received the gift of his daughter, Bexley. She's cute. She, she's a great young girl. Um, and I went to visit him shortly, shortly after they, they got her. She was three months old, and, and he'd had some time with her. And, and it was kind of like the, the end of the process the end of the trial, the, the end of pouring themselves out, the, the end of giving of themselves to try, try to bring about a child into their lives. I was sitting there with him, and I said, okay, Kyle, now, now that we're here, now that you have her, now that she's yours, now that you're at the end of the matter in a way, would you change anything would you change anything about the trials and the pain and the steps that it took to get you to be 
to this place to be this girl's father? And he said, no. I wouldn't change anything. It, it all was a, a part of God's plan to bring her into my life. So today, I hope this passage, this encouragement, that, that we know the end of all things. That at the end, God will raise us up and we will be present with him. We will look back on the trials. We will look back on the spirits working and pushing us through to love and to overcome. And when we're in his presence, we won't change anything. There's no special power that we needed to get there. There's no special attitude shift, way of thinking that made it happen. It's the Spirit's work within us to bring us into eternity with our Heavenly Father. And in that space, we will not change a thing.